Volume. Welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. My name is Mwebeng Valencia Talani. This podcast is brought to you by Corruption Watch and produced by Volume. On this episode, we will talk about beneficial ownership transparency, particularly in the context of state capture as experienced in South Africa. This is the ability to discern who owns what stake of what company that does business with the stake and to what extent that company enjoys proximity to influential parties with interests in government. If you followed the proceedings of the Sondo Commission, you would have heard, at least in the case of state-owned entity Denel, that there were concerns regarding the true ownership of some of the companies that were invariably linked to VR Laser, the company that ended up getting hundreds of millions worth of contracts with the SOE. One of the witnesses told the commission that he was a victim of a hostile takeover at VR Laser. He had owned a stake in the company and some time that associates of the Gupta Empire brought in new partners on board and that was the end of his ownership. Unfortunately for him, it meant that the company would go on to do business with Denel without his involvement. For the executives at Denel, they only started looking into the true identity of directors of Free Art Laser when they became aware of media reports speculating that Tutuzani Zuma was involved in one way or another in the companies and was said to rake in millions of rents through a number of transactions that had to do with acquisition of armored vehicles and other equipment. So it begs the question, should public procurement involve scrutinizing ownership of companies that want to do business with government? Is that a feasible exercise, given that what we know of the public procurement space? Can it be done without any political interference? We're joined on this episode by Garabo Rajwili, the County Director for Open Ownership. Garabo, welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked. Tell us briefly, please, about your organization and what it does. Sure thing, and thank you so much for having me on this podcast today. So Open Ownership was formed in 2017 as a non-profit organization, and at the time it was formed out of the London Anti-Corruption Summit, where knowing who is behind companies, who owns and controls companies, was a key anti-corruption objective which was identified by a number of countries globally. So a group of civil society organizations including Global Witness, the Open Contracting Partnership, the One Campaign came together to say how can we build the momentum around getting countries to make commitments to implementing the reforms to make sure that we understand who the true owners of companies who are doing business with the state but generally who are operating in the financial market. I think what we've seen since the early days of open ownership and sort of that early campaigning period is that this has become one of the most critical areas when it comes to the anti-corruption agenda. And this is partly in result to the work of investigative journalists who through the Panama Papers and subsequently through the Paradise Papers, which as many of the listeners will know, 
was an investigation which I think revealed the extent to which the lack of transparency of who the beneficial owners are, so the true owners behind companies, was identified as a key facilitator of corruption. And so in response, many governments have begun to make commitments to implement these reforms. Initially in Europe, this was done through the Anti-Money Laundering Directive Number 5, but then we also see that countries globally, I think there's now over 120 countries globally, who have now commitments to saying that in their markets they're going to implement the relevant laws as well as policy frameworks so that information around who these beneficial owners are can be made available both within government but also in some countries be made publicly available. So I think it's gone from being quite a niche area um, in relation to more anti-money laundering or counter-terrorism finance work to, I think, becoming really a critical policy area touching a number of areas, including anti-corruption as well. Mm. To what extent have you tapped into the state capture period, the state capture investigation, the commission itself, and what has been revealed through there? So beneficial ownership. So this is the way that I like to think about it, because I think sometimes when you say beneficial ownership, it's not the greatest term. I'd like to think of it this way. Say, for example, you've got your favorite coffee shop where you know that the most amazing carrot cake is made. It's your favorite coffee shop. You love it. You go there every single week. You then, one of these Tuesdays, sit across the table from somebody who in high school was your arch enemy, your rival, somebody who you didn't wish any wellness upon. <laughs> only to then ask another one of the customers to say, who is this person? And this customer says to you, oh, this is a person who actually owns a cafe. The question that you are then left with in this moment is, I really enjoy this carrot cake and coffee. It's, it's amazing. I like it. But now that I've discovered that this person who honestly in high school I despise to my inner core is the owner, is that going to change your behavior? <laughs> but if we move it away from perhaps the petty concern around a rivalry or somebody that you don't necessarily like to maybe the more criminal. So the same cafe on the street, which you really enjoy, you enjoy this carrot cake. You're sitting at the very same table. Different scenario is you one day see somebody who you've been reading about in the newspaper who has been linked to a number of violent crimes, corruption has been associated with the underworld. You ask a fellow customer, oh, what is he doing sitting here? You then discover this customer says to you, oh, don't you know, this person actually is a person who benefits financially from this coffee shop where we all enjoy the carrot cake. Does this change your behavior in that particular instance? A third scenario could be, say you are the baker of this amazing carrot cake. You've been wanting to open a coffee shop on your favorite street. Say, for example, in Melville. You've been trying to get a license to open your coffee shop to sell this amazing carrot cake, but you've really been struggling. But you saw a memo from the local city that said that they're really encouraging new businesses to set up these coffee shops in Melville. But you see all these other businesses popping up and you can't understand for the life of you why it's so difficult. You then think to yourself, well, maybe I should just try and understand why these other businesses are successful. So maybe I can find out who they are um, how they managed to be successful in getting licenses to operate. You then decide, in addition to reading about their different web pages, which you know, look like all viable businesses, you go to the, the CIPC, South Africa's Commission, to find out who the directors are and who the shareholders. To your absolute shock and horror, you discover that whilst all the directors of these different coffee shops and cafes are different, the shareholders are actually all the same. You then discover as a result of this process that 
all 10 coffee shops that have been open along the street are actually owned and controlled and have their economic benefits derived by exactly the same group of individuals, which means that the objective of having new entrants in the market have, has absolutely been subverted. Sort of the concept of beneficial ownership is that, that who owns or who controls and who gets economic benefit out of a particular company or trust arrangement, so a legal entity. So when it comes to the Zondo Commission applying sort of this more simplistic logic to it, I think we saw from the Zondo Commission reports and the evidence presented by a number of witnesses that it related in a large part to South Africa's broken procurement regulatory system. And that some of the safeguards that have been put in place, some of the contracts that have been issued out facilitated large-scale corruption. And I think that evidence was made very, very clear. But one aspect of it, which I think was almost as a common thread which goes through a lot of the evidence which was revealed, was this idea either of a conflict of interests, be it in the state, in the instance of Transnet, you'll have procurement officials who had some kind of economic interest in companies getting business from um, companies that the government was contracting out to, or for example, in the case that you've revealed about Denal right now, or, for example, a number of other companies where there was an, either an obvious conflict of interest or as a result of companies being given business from the state, there simply wasn't delivery of services. So I think what the evidence from the Zonda Commission has revealed is something that we know about the risk that is created by the lack of information about who owns and controls companies, particularly in procurement process, that in order to make sure that conflicts of interest or service delivery is actually facilitated, procurement officials but also the public needs to know who are these companies, is there risk around them, are there political figures who are involved in these companies who should not be involved in them, or are there private families who are deriving extraordinary wealth from these types of companies because they somehow managed to corner the market and block other entrants from getting business from it. So I think what we see from the evidence revealed in the Zondo Commission report is something which we see also globally, that a lot of the corruption risk which has been facilitated in a number of sectors, but including public procurement, is that the inability or the inaccessibility of information of who the beneficial, so the true owners of companies, is really the highest risk factor in terms of facilitating these kinds of grand corruption. The World Bank, for example, did a study back in 2011, when this was still probably even a more nascent topic area, and they identified that globally, so not just South Africa, but globally, in all grand corruption cases, so not petty corruption, no pickpocketing, but the grand sort of grievous state capture levels of corruption, in 70% of these cases, opacity around who owns and controls companies is a thing which facilitated corruption. So if we're thinking that the margin is 70% when you're talking about grand corruption cases, what then in South Africa where we've gone through an era of state capture? That's quite worrying, sobering. <laughs> Look, I, I hear what you say about what the commission has revealed um, and, and from your perspective how that relates to the rest of the world but what's the most practical way to address it i'm thinking along the lines of members of the executive or rather the executive level of denel only started questioning the true ownership of this one company that keeps getting contracts uh, and i'm talking hundreds of millions of rands at a time 
uh, that doesn't seem to have had the experience of procuring or, or supplying rather these products in, in the past. Only when they started scrutinizing, when they started looking into media reports that spoke about how the former president's son may be a beneficiary in a, uh, or a director in a company that's linked to these transactions, did they start looking. Is it a practical expectation of us as members of the public to assume that those participating in public procurement can do the work of scrutinizing these companies to the extent that they're able to evaluate who owns what in these companies and therefore which companies have close proximity to politicians, influential politicians and stuff like that. My thinking is, how do we make it a practical exercise in public procurement? So much so that no politician, whether local or from another country, is able to reap the rewards of a multi-million rand contract with the state based on the fact that we cannot see or we cannot tell that they are behind a particular company. What you're saying makes a lot of sense and I, I particularly like your sort of emphasis on practicality because I think sort of there's the grand perspective of these opaque structures, what's often called shell companies, facilitate corruption. And I think a couple of responses to that. And I think one is important to recognize that in South Africa, there have been civil society actors, particularly investigative journalists, who have already been at the forefront of identifying these cases where conflicts of interests or corruption has been facilitated by the use of shell companies not just in South Africa, but for example, in a number of the evidence poised produced, sort of put in the, in the Zonda Commission, you saw that it would be the facilitation of money using shell companies across a number of jurisdictions. And so a company is formed in South Africa, the monies then are sort of flow through a number of jurisdictions, ultimately land up in Dubai. And the work of investigative journalists really was able to follow the money trail to say, why is it that a contract was awarded and then suddenly the money flows go through all these different shell companies, landing up in a totally different jurisdiction elsewhere? And what does this tell us about who's ultimately benefiting, but how actually this public money is being sort of siphoned out the state as opposed to actually being spent for the purpose for which it was intended. So I think we already have capacity within civil society in terms of being able to use this information. The difficulty has been, as we see in many other jurisdictions, is that this effort of trying to do the work of piecing together the information about who these companies are, who's behind them, has taken an extraordinary amount of time. And the problem with that is not only that it takes time, but that it allows for corruption to continue to persist during the period in which the sort of the building of the case, the building of the evidence is happening. And so if we think that if all this information had been available online at the click of a button, investigative journalists, civil society, government, the SIU, for example, could have been clicking for this information, identifying much earlier on that actually there's a red flag here. We need to be looking into this a lot earlier to be able to identify or stop the extent of corruption and risk. And so I think it's one time just to say, I think this work is already happening in the sector. Number two, I think it's important to remember in South Africa, as is the case globally, 
government has been making commitments to say we are going to make more transparency around beneficial ownership. And so in early as 2015, through the G20 process, South Africa committed to make information about the beneficial owners of companies as well as trust arrangements available and not just available to government users but publicly available and so remembering that we come off the base of a number of different commitments through government. Also it's been really significant that in the latest round of discussions in NEDLAC around the public procurement bill all stakeholders involved in that agreed that in order to address the weaknesses and gaps around public procurement they recommended and this is business labor as well as civil society involved in the netlag process which is the essential policy making body when it comes to legislation have said that there should be transparency around the beneficial ownership of companies not just at the stage and i think maybe the distinction here is important is that they've said that this is important but what's important is that it's not just at the stage of when the contract has been awarded but at the point at which companies are registering to become to do business with the state and at the point where the tender committee is making decisions around it so i think there's sort of three areas where this becomes important in terms of the practicality of beneficial ownership being something which is could sort of stem the tide of corruption is one saying at the point of registration companies wanting to do business with the state should in addition to what they disclose already which is direct information should also to be disclosing who their beneficial owners are who is behind us who's benefiting from this company and then as part of the actual deliberation stage when decisions are being made who is going to win a contract this information should be made available to the adjudication committees as well so that any kinds of conflicts of interest can be identified. And then in terms of public scrutiny, as civil society organisations, I think, have been saying more information about who is winning contracts, who is behind contracts as being made available, there probably is a really good case for making information of who gets or who is awarded contracts, this information being made publicly available. And I think because it is quite a lot of capacity within civil society to then do the scrutiny around, oh, we see that this company keeps on winning a contract. We see that these five people are the ones who are behind a particular company. The work of being able to, you know, raise the red flag, blow the whistle, be made so much easier than it currently is at the moment. And so I think, if anything, having more transparency around the beneficial ownership of companies will probably make this work a lot more practical than is currently right now, where it takes a lot more effort, research, having to talk to a number of individuals involved, as opposed to having this information captured somewhere where this information can then be looked up as opposed to having to do this piecing exercise as is the case right now so i would say that and then also i think it's important to realize that south africa isn't alone in the work that's happening around beneficial ownership transparency particularly in public procurement in the last couple of years there's been a growing number of countries who have been trying to put in place mechanisms around how to do exactly this driven both by government and procurement authorities thinking about how to reduce risk in public procurement. We see, for example, in Kenya, they've been amending their legislation to make it a requirement for all companies who are awarded contracts to have an obligation to have this information not only disclosed but be made publicly available. 
we also see an extraordinary move. And so the international financial watchdog, the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, recently reviewed its requirements. So FATF has got 40 requirements around what countries should do in terms of having systems in place for financial integrity. And one of these requirements, requirement 24, was amended earlier this year in March to say, in addition to having to establish what's often called a beneficial ownership register, companies should make, countries should make efforts to be able to not only have these registers in place, but ensure that public authorities can have this information available, particularly in procurement processes. And this is a significant shift for the Financial Action Task Force, which traditionally has been more sort of focused on, again, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorism, finance concerns, to actually identify that in addition to the AML justification for having these requirements, public procurement has been elevated to this extent through the FATF. In South Africa, we know that there's sort of concerns around a potential grey listing because of not having made significant progress when it comes to beneficial ownership transparency. And so I think, and we've seen government respond very quickly around trying to get legislation passed. And so I think we see the significance and the weight that governments place on the FATF process. And so I think it's significant both from an international standards perspective, but then also from sort of a risk perspective from a country level where we see the evidence from the Zonda Commission that I think the case has been made. And so I think, if anything, the practical outworking of being able to access this information is probably the easiest step as opposed to, I think, the hard work around making the case and the difficulty that I think investigative journalists, law enforcement have been going through in order to get this information, in order to build the case for making more transparency of who owns and controls companies doing business with the state. I learned for the first time of an interdepartmental committee on beneficial ownership transparency. And they, through that, uh, from what I understand from the FIC, government has adopted a policy of establishing a national system to record information on the beneficial ownership of companies and other corporate vehicles such as trusts through access to existing registries held by the CIPC, the Companies and Intellectual Property Commission, master's offices, these offices, Department of Social Development, and other organs of state. And the broader point I was making was that, yes, it's all good and well that government is making this, has had this progress in this area. But the private sector also has a big role to play in the sense that, particularly the banking sector, in the sense that for companies to make money off of state contracts, I would imagine, they would have to have facilities within possibly even local banks with members of the banking sector. So to that extent, what's your view of how well the private sector has played its part, if at all, in BOT and could they be doing more? And if they are not doing enough, what does it look like the more that they could do? Those are really great questions. I want to sort of break it into two parts. One, the role of the private sector, and then two, the work of this interdepartmental committee. So first on the private sector, and I think 
this is a really critical thing when you're talking about, you know, the role of the banks in being central to combating some of the risks around companies and their beneficial ownership. I mean, th- this is really important. And it reminded me of a piece of legislation that's been making its way through the American Congress called the Enablers Act. And so this understanding of banks and other private sector entities, particularly lawyers and accountants, have been a key facilitator of the types of corruption and crimes that you have seen. And so be it a lawyer sort of using legal privilege or helping a company or a beneficial owner set up a company a particular way in order to evade tax or sort of hide their interests, or in the same way accountants doing something similar, or the reality that banks have got an obligation currently in law to report when there are suspicions, what's sometimes called a suspicious transaction, so where banks are required to report where this might be the case, or where banks have currently got a requirement to do a due diligence check on their clients to ensure that there isn't a high-risk individual who might be behind a particular account. So we saw this, for example, in the Zonda Commission evidence where you had banks being used by these individuals who had set up entities to transfer their monies across multiple jurisdictions. And so I think there is a really important role of the private sector as enablers of the types of financial crimes that we have seen. And so I think, yes, on the one hand, and to just bring it back to the South African context, banks have currently got obligations under the Financial Intelligence Centre Act to do customer due diligence on their clients at the point at which they're setting up accounts or to sort of identify if there's any risk. And so I think the private sector has been doing this. There's been some demand from them to be able to have access to more beneficial ownership data, to be able to cross-check and verify this. But then also more broadly, as we see more globally, the understanding that in order to really tackle these types of sophisticated financial crimes, these obligations around having lawyers and accountants and other private sector actors who have often been enablers of these types of risks really also have some kind of function and the system is really crucial. So I think as South Africa takes this work forward, thinking about the role that enablers need to play in in being a critical stakeholder really needs to be taken into consideration quite carefully, both in sort of drafting the, the regulatory framework around what these obligations could be or drawing on the sort of international perspective on what the role of lawyers and accountants could be in really tackling these types of crimes and not being amongst those who help facilitate or enable, as the word correctly suggests. So I think there's that. And even within the FATF system, there's, I think, an increasing realisation of the importance of having the DNFSPB, so the Designated Non-Financial Sector (laughs) Bodies, which, again, is your, your accountants and your lawyers and others of such nature, really have some obligations to both report but also do scrutiny for themselves of their clients and the people behind their clients as well. So that's the private sector. On um, South Africa's approach to implementing beneficial ownership reforms and indeed the work of this interdepartmental committee, I mean, I think this is a, a really it's, it's a really interesting model and I think it's a really important model, which we don't see in many other countries. So because of the nature of beneficial ownership, the number of different government departments who are involved in this, it really requires a whole of government approach. It's not just 
the FIC or just the CIPC or just the Department of Trade and Industry who are involved. You've got these multiple registers because it's not just companies, it's also trusts, it's also to some extent understanding who's behind property, so your your um, immovable asset classes. And so I think because of this whole of government approach, I think it's been really, I think, a bit of a feather in South Africa's cap that there has been this coordinating committee set up that we don't see in a number of other countries as open ownership. I think often it's something that we say that a government should really consider having some kind of coordinating committee to think holistically about what implementing these reforms can be. One, because of the need for coordination, but two, in really making sure that when the regulatory and the legislative framework is set up, there aren't loopholes which can then be used as a mechanism to sort of redirect interests. And so in a number of other countries who sort of take a a staggered approach, they might start with implementing reforms around requiring transparency of companies or a subset of companies and then moving on to other sectors. Whilst this might be sort of a trying to make some progress in, in small ways, what it has sometimes done is allow for those who are trying to abuse the financial system to then choose their vehicle of choice, which isn't covered by the current regulatory system. An example which we love at Open Ownership is an example that comes out of the United Kingdom's process of implementing reforms. And so the United Kingdom is a bit of a first starter when it comes to implementing BO reforms. And they had identified which companies they thought should be required to report on who their beneficial owners are. At the time, they had a set of companies, but the one entity which they thought wasn't necessarily so high risk were Scottish Limited Liability Partnerships. They sort of saw these as relatively innocuous entities and so didn't put these within their disclosure framework. What the evidence then showed, and this is partly through the work of investigative journalists but also the others, is that as soon as a requirement to report the beneficial owners of other companies became a requirement, there was a sudden uptick in interest of registrations under Scottish Limited Liability Partnerships. And so pretty much this principle of redirecting interest to the area where there hasn't been a some kind of regulatory requirement. And so as a result of the sudden uptick, and it was quite a dramatic uptick in SLP suddenly being used as a vehicle of choice. Companies house in the UK then had to go back, make the necessary maintenance to include SLPs within the BO disclosure framework. And subsequently after that, the sudden rapid rise in registrations through using SLPs suddenly declined again. So the fact that South Africa is going with this coordinated, multi-agency, multi-departmental process, I think really places the country in a good place to be able to avoid these kinds of scenarios of vehicles or entities of choice being used, which haven't been covered under the current disclosure requirements. So that I think is something which I think others should really sort of build upon and really use as a way to ensure that this is done as comprehensively as possible. So I think from our perspective as open ownership, there isn't any sort of concern around that particular model of anything. I think more countries should be thinking about having similar types of committees or coordinating agencies and so forth. Also to disclose, because that's important. <laughs> We're talking about disclosures. Um, Open Ownership has been working with the Interdepartmental Committee for about 12 months now as part of our technical support to the South African government, really using or sort of working with this coordinated agency 
to provide our guidance and support in whichever way has been made possible. Maybe in terms of reflecting critically on it, and I think to some extent there has been a bit of work around making this committee more known outside of government or outside of the agencies involved, is to really, I think, have the committee or have civil society be more involved as part of this coordinated approach in whatever way would make a lot of sense. As much as this should be a government-led process, there's a critical role for civil society in implementing these reforms. There, there probably is a, a real opportunity for the committee or for civil society to think about having some way to engage more meaningfully in this process going forward so that the sort of the evidence and the experiences of civil society can be taken on board in more useful ways. But otherwise, yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting and I think potentially successful model in how to go about implementing these complex reforms. Is it enough to earn us the trust of the FATF so that we don't perhaps end up being greylisted? Or am I being naive? <laughs> so look, I mean, the, the FATF doesn't prescribe the mechanism by which governments should make progress around meeting the requirements for recommendation 24 or 25 or indeed all 40 recommendations. I think they're looking at sort of the outworking of any of these processes in terms of meeting the requirements. And so I think it's, it's useful in terms of South Africa really being able to define for itself what needs to be done and how it should be done. The difficulty, I think, is that the timelines around, particularly for the FATF process and for South Africa to avoid greylisting, are very tight. So, for example, the FATF will be looking not just for the deliberations and debates to be happening, but for actual concrete evidence of changes being made. So having the legislation being passed and operational or have evidence, and this was something that came through in the Zonda Commission report as well, have evidence of law enforcement agencies making use of beneficial ownership data as part of successfully prosecuting financial crime cases. And so I think the difficulty is that we've only just gotten the sort of the evidence from the Zonda Commission report and law enforcement's mandate or sort of marching orders have only just been issued in terms of what the NPA and other agencies are required to do. And we've only just begun to see the actual legislation be deliberated in what many civil society organizations have criticized as a far too rushed process in Parliament. And so I think Whilst the mechanism is a very strong one in terms of the IDC, there is the difficulty of the very tight timeframes by which South Africa needs to have shown progress or indeed actual compliance to the FATF where the final decision will be made around grey listing in February of next year. With all of that in mind, um, I mean, we commend the efforts that have been made by government and um, like you say, the, the model being of this unique nature and a pioneer basically globally. Is there a need for, for us, us being government, civil society, private sector, combined stakeholder environment for us to ensure that there's public access to such information. Is it important for members of the public, the ordinary Joe on the street, does he have to care about BOT? And if so, who in this environment has, has the opportunity or the responsibility to make sure that happens? Why does this matter and who should care? That's a difficult one. <laughs> who should really care? I think multiple people should care and multiple agencies should care. But there's really nice, nice language which has been developed, particularly in South Africa's Companies Act and 
in South Africa's jurisprudence around the imperative of transparency of corporations. So two things come to mind. In the, the foundational principles of South Africa's Companies Act, there's this understanding, and I wish I had the text in front of me, but to paraphrase it, it says that transparency of companies is essential to the exercise of their function in South Africa. And I think that this principle is stated within legislation, the founding legislation for what a company is and how a structure is important in terms of the sort of why does this matter. So <laughs> transparency is imperative, then naturally it should be that we should understand that there might be an importance for why this matters to the general public or to the ordinary Joe on the street. But then there's a second aspect, and I think this maybe comes to the more why it should matter to, to ordinary people. So in the matter of understanding who is behind companies has come before South Africa's courts in a number of instances. The first is the Bernstein matter, but the second is a matter which was brought before the courts in 2016. And one of the important sort of points that the court made was that because companies not just companies who do business with the state, but companies who make profit as a result of being in communities. So you've got a mining company that's deriving economic benefit through mining, extract or sort of doing its business. So as a, as a consequence of deriving some kind of benefit from a communal good, there's an obligation, therefore, that comes to those companies to be transparent about who is behind them, who is benefiting, because these companies are operating within community, they're operating within the public sphere. It's even more so when a company is doing business with the state, because they're not obligated to do business with the state, they choose to do business with the state, therefore requirement for them to be more transparent, because they ultimately are a partner in delivering goods and services. And so in both circumstances, because of the public nature of how companies are able to derive economic benefit and indeed the individuals behind them. I think South Africa's courts, as well as historical legislation, has really sort of pointed to the imperative of why this matters and why it should matter to the ordinary Joe. And so if we think of many of the mining affected communities, I know the Corruption Watch has been doing a lot of research about these communities who are either beneficiaries of a trust, for example, and they don't know it, but their names appear on a trust deed as a beneficiaries. They never receive the benefits from the trust. And if they were able to go to their local master and see that, oh, actually, my name or my family are listed on this trustee, they would have a much stronger ability to say, well, actually, where are the economic benefits? Or in communities who have, have had suffered the um, hardship of the environment being harmed by mining activity, they will often ask that question of, well, who is behind these companies? Who is behind the cars that are suddenly moving into my community? And so I think it's a natural instinct for people within a community to be able to say, well, who is this person who's behind this company? Or the suspicions around why does it look like my local councillor seems to be suddenly getting really wealthy <laughs> as all these new companies come into my community? And so I think there's a, there's a natural sort of ordinary perception of we can see that it seems like certain people are getting wealthy. We kind of are connecting the dots. And so by being able to have a way to access this information, maybe we can then come to, the, to a very firm conclusion of, indeed, what we sort of saw with our ordinary eye is proven 
by the actual filings of a particular company which has got a requirement around this. For civil society, which may be for formal civil society, which is more organized to provide support to communities or others who are trying to exercise their rights, this becomes a really powerful tool in terms of research or analysis to be able to cross-check the ordinary perceptions of those who are in communities against the available information which might be made accessible through government filings and so forth. So I think there's one sort of the imperative principles, there's the jurisprudence, there's the ordinary person's observations, and then there's the important work that a lot of civil society organizations do to try and triangulate what is being said from communities versus what is available in terms of evidence to really draw these conclusions. But also I think it's not just on the negative consequence side of this as well. I think in South Africa there's very live debates about you know economic transformation or wanting to have more players within the marketplace. And so I think in terms of being able to provide an evidence base on whether changes in policies are really meeting the social or economic transformation goals which government or other social partners are setting or whether or not more women or more youth are being able to actually enter the marketplace. This type of information of who owns and controls companies becomes really a critical evidence basis for being able to either measure the impact of it or actually really see that the policy intent is not really being met by who's actually winning these contracts or who's being able to operate in the wider marketplace. On that note, that positive note, and in the spirit of of civil society organizations who completely understand the public access to information agenda and why that's important, I would like to thank you very, very much, Garabo, for joining us. Uh, You've been a great guest. Uh, I've learned so much from the area of work that you guys are involved in. And we can only hope that, indeed, we make even greater progress than we have already in this area. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for this episode. I've been your host, Mwepeng Valencia Talani. Join us again for some more discussions on the Zondo Commission and what it means for you and me. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Stay safe. Volume.